Hello and welcome to the Energy Efficiency Podcast, sponsored by EcoFlap Home Draft Proofing Products, the ideal fit and forget energy efficiency solutions, including the Pet Flap Draft Proof Pet Door. My name is Heather Lindsay and I'm the Communications Manager for EcoFlap. This weekly podcast will bring you a mix of news, products and tips all year round. We're interested in profiling people and products involved in promoting energy efficiency habits, products and information, so please do get in touch if you have something to contribute. You can reach me at heather at ecoflap.co.uk. This week, energy efficiency in student housing, the role of Ofgem and the Champions of the Earth Award. But before we get on with our advertised features, Business Green reported recently that TFAL has launched a recycling scheme together with Sainsbury's, just in time for last week's Recycle Week campaign that we looked at in the last episode. The idea is that customers return worn-out pans and in return get a one-third discount on TFAL's So Recycled range. 300 Sainsbury stores will have collection points open until mid-October. Now, you won't be surprised to hear that the scheme coincides with TFAL launching a new range of non-stick pans made wholly from recycled aluminium. According to TFAL, the combination of recycled materials and their own energy-efficient manufacturing processes makes these pans 90.90% less emitting to produce. These pans' non-stick coating is designed to last twice as long as older coatings, so the cookware will have longevity, and that's something that always makes a healthy contribution to the lifetime emissions value of an item. To complement the pans, TFAL has produced a range of utensils made with 95% recycled materials. A quick look at pan recycling on council websites shows that, in general, they aren't collected curbside. Depending on what they're made from, they could go in the scrap metal hopper at the tip. Donating to the TFAL Sainsbury scheme seems a good move, even if you aren't looking to buy a TFAL replacement or any kind of replacement. Looking in charity shops reveals a huge choice of cookware, most of which is in perfectly good enough condition and likely to last another good few years. It also can be a cheap way of getting your hands on some nice cast iron cookware. TFAL isn't the only company incorporating recycled material into its pots and pans. Dutch company Combeck casts Dutch ovens in Holland. You don't get much more authentic than that. And they use the traditional method of casting iron in sand moulds. Combeck describes its product as 100% recycled. Each pan has a stamp on the foot of it which tells you what the main recycled material is in that particular pan. It might be a train track or it could be a prison bar. Incidentally, if you make your own sourdough bread, a Dutch oven is meant to be great for baking it in. British company Crane, which describes itself as a micro-brand, produces smart pots and pans with up to 30% recycled materials. Their products are 100 recyclable too. I'm just off for a rummage through the pan cupboard. Our younger daughter has just applied to university, so next year we'll be waving off another child to start the higher education journey. Most students in the UK go away to university. In other words, they don't live at home while they're studying. We have an extraordinary density of higher education settings in the UK, and most kids can choose the setting that offers the course that best suits them, even if it means moving over 300 miles away, which is one option our daughter is looking at. 
Student accommodation and leisure facilities are an area ripe for energy efficiency improvements, something that hasn't been lost on those providing it. These days, providing student housing is almost a standalone business for some universities and colleges. Providing higher education combines a domestic element to a greater or lesser extent and a business-come-academic environment, presenting the full gamut of both problems and opportunities for improvement. From our experience and that of friends' kids, student accommodation varies hugely in facilities, comfort and good management. It's an area we've seen poorly designed and badly delivered, but it doesn't have to be that way. Students can feel very much at the end of a long chain when it comes to accommodation provision, and there are some things you can't easily change, like antisocial neighbours or being a 40-minute bus ride from lectures on a wet November morning. But some students are taking matters into their own hands. SAVES2 stands for Students Achieving Valuable Energy Savings 2. It's an international energy saving competition. Nearly 220,000 students will promote energy saving habits among their peers to help them keep down bills. There's one strand for those in private rented housing and one for those in university accommodation. Student energy saving campaigns have been run before, but what makes this one different is its scope. Local or short-term schemes have run before, but nothing engaging students across the whole academic year or more and between several countries and connecting them. Student switch-off runs in university accommodation. For those not familiar with how this works, many universities and colleges can't provide in-house accommodation for all three or sometimes four years of a typical undergraduate degree in the UK. In this situation, in the second year and often beyond, students have to find private rented accommodation near their college. This can be an absolute lottery with a good chance of ending up in substandard rooms that are a nightmare to keep warm. Bear in mind that in the UK, the university year starts in late September and ends in late spring, so students are in those rooms in the coldest, wettest months. Some colleges, however, including many Oxford and Cambridge colleges, can provide rooms in college for the full three years, and this is known as university accommodation. It's worth bearing in mind that much, though far from all, of this type of accommodation is, can be quite historic to a greater or lesser extent, even the more modern stuff can comfortably be 50 years old, and some of it's listed, and that immediately complicates energy saving. It's this latter setup that student switch-off applies to. The idea is to train student ambassadors in each dormitory who then encourage their peers to save energy. It's a race and there are prizes. We're talking about the nation's teenagers, so the campaign uses social media, although it uses Facebook, which really is not the cool thing it used to be once upon a time if you're a teenager. It also employs quizzes and photo competitions to raise awareness. Each competition runs an energy dashboard online, which updates in real time. Each dormitory rises or falls through the ranks depending on how well its students do with saving energy. The strand of the competition for students in private rented accommodation is known as SAVES. This is distinct from SAVES 2, which is the name of the overall competition combining both strands, so that's a bit confusing. SAVES will target 100,000 students and help them to make better informed decisions when choosing their accommodation, which is quite interesting, and route them towards more efficient properties. So in theory, this is rewarding the landlords who provide more energy efficient accommodation, but that's on the assumption that there's actually a choice. And in our experience, it's more of a scramble than a choice. 
This arm of the competition partners with so-called smart meter delivery agencies to get the point across to students and, it has to be said, their families. Most 18-19 year olds aren't making these decisions alone. Interestingly, this arm of the competition includes bill management. Some private rented accommodation has an all-in rent where your slice of the bills are included, whereas others charge a more basic rent but then expect students to manage the bills between them. For those having to see to it for themselves, the bill management could be a very useful tool and good training for the future. In the UK, the project is being coordinated by the NUS, the National Union of Students, which has received nearly €400,000 from the EU for the project. There are colleges taking part from countries including Belgium, Greece, Ireland, Lithuania, Romania and Bulgaria. International twinning encourages international competition between dormitories. More about that later. This project first ran in the academic year 2014-15 to and then again in the following year. The current competition starts with this new academic year now. However, the NUS first ran its student switch-off SSO in 2006. Before SAVES began, the SSO was delivered at 54 universities, reached 130,000 students and delivered average energy savings of 6% per participating dormitory. This information needed to be collated and presented once the SSO was over, but SAVES can deliver immediate performance information. In this way, it presented an opportunity to test how well smart meters provide real-time information, something we looked at last week in the Energy Efficiency Innovation Competitions being run by the UK Government. SAVES' primary aim was for an 8% reduction in energy use per participating setting as opposed to the SSO's 6%. Its second aim was to instil good habits in young adults at a change point in their lives so that they would take those habits forward into their adult life. Studies have shown that new habits formed at these pivotal moments of change can become deeply ingrained and interestingly this was borne out by a study that showed that first year students were far more receptive to campaigns of this sort than those who had already been at college a year or more before being introduced to them. The habits that SAVES intends to instill are simple but effective. I'll list them. Turning off lights. Switching off appliances that aren't in use. Putting lids on pans that are on the hob. Putting a jumper on instead of turning up the heating. The obvious issue here, though, is that in shared accommodation with one thermostat, people are going to have varying personal comfort levels and that can unravel quite fast. Not overfilling the kettle and opening the window before putting on the air conditioning. Not such an issue in UK universities, especially as students are not usually in their student housing in the warmer weather here. Previous studies of the local shorter term variety show that university halls of residence make good energy savings on the back of a campaign up to 30%. These studies showed that people were most motivated by the actions of those around them. The previous student switch-off campaign was considered a success with its well-defined aims that it achieved. For this next part of the report, we're drawing on a PDF download of a review into the 2017-2018 student switch-off campaign. The research is by Richard Bull of De Montfort University, Neil Jennings and Joanna Romanovich of the NUS, and Marina Lascari of the National and Kapodistrian University of Athens. For the purpose of this research, a control group was set up in halls in Linköping in Sweden. 
This building had a high number of residents and, crucially, baseline energy use information that was easy to access. And there were no other initiatives or exercises going on that could influence the residents and skew the figures. The halls of residence monitored for the success of the campaign were in Cyprus, Greece, Lithuania, Sweden and the UK. I think this quote is interesting as it shows a particular issue in providing student accommodation in the UK. In all countries except for the UK, 60% or more of respondents lived in dorms of the same dorm provider in both years. In the UK, this percentage was only 7% because the vast majority of students move out into the private rented sector each year. So that's 60% of students out of the UK staying in their dorms for two or more years, whereas in the UK that's 7%. Students were studied over the two years to see whether they implemented in their second year habits formed in their first. At the end of their first year, students felt that their awareness of energy saving had increased a little. But of course, students will arrive at university with varying habits instilled in them by their parents. Someone already hyper-aware of how to save energy won't increase their awareness much after a campaign, but yet they'll be an ideal dormitory resident from an energy-saving point of view. In the questionnaires given to students, family came out as one of the three strongest influences on energy-saving awareness, together with documentaries and, crucially, student switch-off. This was the case across the five participating countries in both years. According to the questionnaires, three habits showed a statistical increase. Putting a lid on pans, boiling just the right amount of water in a kettle and turning off electronic appliances. Most of the students reached by this earlier campaigns made changes to their behaviour and almost all of those took their new habits with them into post-Hall's life. Part of their motivation was money-saving. The halls of residence taking part in the campaign showed energy savings significantly outpacing those in the control building, over 12% compared to about 2%, figures that stayed similar into the second year. There's more research to be done into how to make these campaigns as sticky as possible. Students in all the participating countries in the first two years preferred to rate themselves against universities in their own countries, so they didn't see a value in competing against a country they weren't familiar with, which was something that the SSO had initially thought would be appealing. Enthusiasm for looking at the on online dashboard results tended to fade, but it did have a value, particularly in stimulating competition and therefore energy-saving behaviours. In halls of residence, students have little control over the delivery of energy and really pretty much anything else about the energy efficiency performance of their building, and this can limit their enthusiasm. If you'd like a quick snapshot of how the participating universities are doing in the current campaign, you can visit the NUS website and look at the dashboard for universities including University of Cambridge, University College Cork, the University of Liverpool, the University of Bucharest and the Technical University of Crete. Many UK universities have a student switch-off stall at the Freshers' Fair, so if you have children off to college any minute now, why not suggest they have a look? They're very receptive to good advice offered at this stage. Hello, Kevin. Hello, and what are we talking about this week? Off-gem. Yeah, one of those off-things, the Office of Gas and Electricity Markets. Yes, supporting the Gas and Electricity Markets Authority, which is also described as its governing body, so that's clear. Yeah, that's crystal clear, I'm sure. And therefore, what's the specific purpose of Ofgem? Quoting Wikipedia, Ofgem, 
is the government regulator for the electricity and downstream natural gas markets in Great Britain. It was formed by the merger of the Office of Electricity Regulation, OFFER, and Office of Gas Supply, OFFGAS, ends. Is it governmental? No. It describes itself on its website as a non-ministerial government department and an independent national regulatory authority. It quickly becomes quite Byzantine, to be honest, trying to work out its exact structure. It makes reference to GEMA on its website too. In the end, it's there to protect customers. And it does that how? Covering consumers when an energy company goes bust? Yeah, it helps in that situation, but it does far more than that. When an energy company goes bust, as sadly several small providers have this year, Ofgem organises a new supply for consumers and ensures they aren't cut off. Ofgem's remit is much broader than that though, aiming to protect customers, should I say consumers, from the worst effects of greenhouse gases and ensuring security of supply at a macro level. Does it have much clout? Yeah, it does actually. It's imposed hefty fines on power companies, £12 million on E.ON five years ago. Wow. What was that for? Mis-selling, i.e. poor sales practice, getting people, specifically what's termed vulnerable customers, so that's people with considerations of old age, illness, poverty, disability, to sign up to plans that weren't in their best interests. E.ON wasn't found to have been malicious, but Ofgem reckoned management hadn't done much to identify any problems or act on them when they came to light. So Ofgem is a watchdog then? It's that too. It has several roles, and those roles each break off into all sorts of specialisms once you start examining it. For instance, smarter grids and governance, finance and risk management, smart metering delivery. Smart metering again. Not sure I like the term, but it's a good overall direction to head. Yeah, it's obviously the future. Before the opening up and privatisation of gas and electricity services under the Thatcher government in the 80s, Ofgem's sort of predecessor, predecessor existed to set price controls. That meant that the monopoly suppliers couldn't charge totally outrageous prices. By the mid-1999, both gas and electricity markets were open to multiple players, and by 2002, the price controls had been dismantled, basically, bit by bit. Why remove the controls? Because Ofgem assumed that competition between the energy suppliers would keep prices down, and that was more or less the case for a couple of years. But then, in 2004... Ofgem began the energy supply probe on the back of rising household debt and increasing prices in many sectors. The result was a package of measures to tackle fuel poverty and other issues, particularly as they affected those vulnerable consumers we mentioned before. At this point, Ofgem lost its price capping powers, and it's worth noting that since then, according to the OVO Energy website, prices have risen by 160%. In 2014, Ofgem announced a competition and markets authority investigation into the major energy companies at the time. I wonder how that was decided. Who was it then? Centrica, SSE, PLC, RWEN Power, E.ON, Scottish Power and EDF Energy. Ofgem viewed it as a kind of draining the swamp type exercise that would restore consumer trust in the big players and provide a clear basis for energy sales in future – it was also intended to reassure those investors. What were the findings? The Competitions and Markets Authority recommended that suppliers provide details to their competitors of any households that had been on the most expensive tariffs for more than three years. Companies had to tell other companies who was right for a change, and that was controversial. Exactly. Ofgem decided to implement the recommendation. 
Ofgem also imposed an interim price cap for consumers who used prepayment meters, and those have traditionally been a very expensive way to use energy. So Ofgem looks after its consumers and keeps an eye on the suppliers and what they're up to and tries to keep environmental concerns in play. Yes, all that, and it regulates the companies that provide supply infrastructure. Pipes and cables and stuff? Yes, and wires. They also monitor companies' performance and keep tabs on complaints. Ofgem essentially ensures that companies behave ethically towards consumers. What does that involve? A few things, including offering different methods of payment, tracking disconnections, supporting energy-saving upgrades, something we looked at in episode 11 in our feature on the grants available for works in the home. Ofgem wants consumers to have access to clear information about tariffs and to be able to compare clearly across companies and to end the practice of making the most attractive tariffs available only to new customers. And that was a real problem area. Oh, yeah. Customers had no idea what tariff they were on as it was so complicated and people found themselves locked into poor value tariffs while other, more recent companies had a better deal. So you might get new neighbours next door and they're get a new connection and they're on a much better tariff than you. It's just not fair, basically. This came out of Ofgem's 2013 Retail Market Review. What did it recommend to help solve that? A much simpler tariff setup. Only one rate per tariff so you knew what your power was costing you without having to do anything clever with your bill. To keep the tariffs to four core offerings. Clearer bills with information summarised in such a way that customers could compare it with what other companies were offering. And for companies to proactively tell customers if they were eligible for a more favourable tariff. All that emphasis on sharing and comparing what different companies offered, does that mean it was easy to switch between suppliers? It's certainly a lot easier now than it was, and this is something else that Ofgem has promoted. It's responsible for something called the Confidence Code. That sounds like it should help you with public speaking or job interview. Yeah, I know. But what it's actually there for is to regulate energy price comparison sites. It means they have to provide fair and unbiased information based on facts and figures, which is absolutely how it should be. Ofgem has information available on its site on how to switch supplier, how to complain and how to get connected to the electricity network in the first place. So overall, does Ofgem do a good job? Well, listening to all that, I think it certainly wants to. It's made real strides in consumer protection, but I'm sure it would like to have more powers. It's demanded consumer redress powers from the government, which means that it could take heftier action against companies that breach the terms of their licence, and the government has included that in the new energy bill. Ofgem is now eyeing the distribution network operators. So these are the companies that deliver electricity from the national grid to your home, pipes and wires, in other words. It's not an open market. How much is that worth? A cool £500 million. In 2015, Ofgem introduced rules and a code of conduct to open up this area of operations to smaller players. The new rules mean that these distribution network operators can't operate across as many aspects of the business as they do now. And in any area where there's no choice but to have one company running all aspects of delivery, they have to be open with supplying technical information to would-be competitors. But also avoid the fragmentation that would make doing things across the UK as a whole too difficult. Sounds like we're definitely better off having Ofgem. I'd say so for sure. If you want to get in touch with Ofgem, visit ofgem.gov.uk and follow the link to what you want to do. Champions of the Earth 
is the United Nations Environment Award. It's the UN's highest environmental honour. It was established in 2005 to recognise outstanding environmental leadership. This year's winner in the policy leadership category is Costa Rica. Awarded by the United Nations Environment Programme, UNEP, Costa Rica was chosen for the award this year for its role in protecting nature and its ambitious policies to combat climate change. One element of this is Costa Rica's detailed plan to achieve net zero by 2050. These plans can be a template for other countries to curb their emissions. Costa Rica has managed to generate a whopping 98% of its energy from renewable sources. This meant its state-owned power provider could stop buying energy from the regional electricity market and instead sell it back to other Central American nations. 75% of this renewable comes from hydro, which, as we've seen, isn't without its drawbacks. But Costa Rica managed to produce power this way despite drought. It puts this achievement down to planning and optimisation of resources, including its geothermal capacity. It now has seven geothermal plants. These use the power contained in volcanic steam and make Costa Rica the third biggest producer of geothermal power in the Americas. This dry spell was a big test for Costa Rica's plans for renewable energy. Costa Rica now considers its dependence on fossil fuels is over and it is well on track to hit its target of using 100% renewable power by 2030. It's funny, isn't it, how you can sometimes get almost 100% of the way there, but that last 1% or 2% of just solving a problem finally can just be that last difficult thorn-needle problem to solve. By 2030, it expects about 70% of all taxis and buses to run on electricity, with full electrification by its net-zero target date of 2050. If you're interested in the nitty-gritty of Costa Rica's renewable systems, follow the link to the EcoWatch article. Costa Rica has made an enormous effort to reforest its land. Decades of deforestation have been reversed, and forest now covers 53% of the country. Around half of its land is now under some form of protection. Its president, Carlos Alvarado Casada, is extremely proud of Costa Rica's achievements, as well he should be, but he believes it can achieve far more. He accepted the award on behalf of the entire population, which incidentally produces only 0.4% of global emissions, yet has gone to these lengths to reduce that to virtually nil, and to its future citizens. Of course, this hasn't happened overnight. Costa Rica has worked on innovative environmental policies for the past 50 years. As it reduces dependence on fossil fuels, it's created employment and will continue to do so in areas including waste management, sustainable agriculture and providing clean public transport. Costa Rica is developing an environmental leadership role. It's co-leading the UN Climate Change Conference in Santiago, Chile this December. Although Chile leads the conference, Costa Rica will be there to drive countries to make ever more ambitious commitments, and it will host a preparatory meeting this month. UNEP's Executive Director, Inga Anderson, described Costa Rica as a pioneer in the protection of peace and nature, and sets an example for the region and for the world, ends, and as rising to the challenge. To quote the UN Environment website, Officials say Costa Rica aims to change the paradigm of development, envisioning a consumption and production system that generates an environmental surplus rather than a deficit. Costa Rica isn't new to this sort of thing. 
In 2010, it was awarded the Future Policy Award by the World Future Council in recognition of its 1998 biodiversity law. That subjective is to conserve biodiversity, use resources sustainably and ensure equal distribution of benefits and costs. It's been considered a success and a model for other nations to follow. For the detail on that law, follow the link in the notes to thereddesk.org, but here's a quick peek at its flavour. Article 11 enacts the preventative and precautionary principles. It also states that biodiversity should be used in the public interest, including conservation, food security and the interest of future generations, and that conservation and sustainable use of biodiversity should be integrated across other policy areas. Ends. The Champions of the Earth Awards began in 2015, and typically it awards five to seven laureates each year from the private and public sectors and civil society. Two years ago, a Young Champions of the Earth section was added. There are no cash prizes. Previous winners include Narendra Modi in 2018 for policy leadership, the Moroccan Agency for Solar Energy in 2016 for entrepreneurial vision, and Albert II, Prince of Monaco, for his commitment to sustainable development in Monaco. The Guardian would like to encourage you to pick up a spade and volunteer to plant a tree on the 30th of November as part of the big climate fightback. The Guardian describes it as the biggest mass tree planting campaign in the UK's history, and Denmark recently ran something a bit similar with a TV fundraising evening which asked people to pay for trees to be planted. In the UK, you can take more direct action by running a tree planting event. This can be anywhere where you have permission to plant trees. The Woodland Trust wants a tree planted for every person in the country over the next five years. It's providing native broadleaf varieties for the event, including oak, birch and hawthorn. Remember that trees will need to be cared for too, so tree planting groups are encouraged to stay together after the planting and look after their saplings. You can pledge to take part through the Woodland Trust website. So far, over 10,000 people have taken part, but the Woodland Trust is hoping for many more, ideally one million. Go sign up now. And what have we been up to? After our recent problems with parts cutting, we've been looking at our options to bring that in-house with new equipment. We still hope to have the Letterplate Eco available before the end of this year. If you'd like to be notified when it's available, please email info at ecoflap.co.uk. Thank you for listening to episode 18 of the Energy Efficiency Podcast. Until next time, you can find us on both Twitter and Instagram as Ecoflap, and on Twitter we also tweet as a pet flap. Next week energy efficiency in tea production, food recycling and the 3% club.